0: Everybody, welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. I really should have done this in the opposite order, but I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to record this week. So, here is one from the vault also on investing versus speculating, just like last week. But this one is from way back at the very beginning like, very beginning. Like, I was like, my head was swirling about this long term. Public investing stuff. And as a private company attorney who worked with emerging companies and venture capital, the concept of investing being more certain than the people I worked with made zero sense to me. And yeah, this is, I suppose, second in our little series here on speculation versus investing. So enjoy. I'm sure you'll notice differences in the way we talk about things. And, uh, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Right. We're here for the Invested Podcast, where we talk about investing in businesses, also known as stocks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we talk about buying the whole business, or acting as if you buy the whole business. <laughs> exactly. When you buy one share of stock.
1: And we've been, we've been talking lately about the basic idea that Warren Buffett has. We're, we're very big on Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger type investing. Um, and, and we've been talking about how to value something in the way Buffett looks at, say, a piece of real estate or a farming operation and just values them as a business is exactly the same way that we want to value any business, whether it's public or private. We want to pay a certain price for it. and We want to understand what we're buying. And we started off this podcast a long time ago with Charlie Munger telling us these four simple things. And and it would probably be a good idea. What do you think? Just to repeat them really quickly right here.
0: I love the four principles. I think about them all the time now. They're so simple and yet there's so much to say about them. I mean, we spent, I think, six podcasts maybe when we (laughs) first started talking about four principles. And I think... I almost think we should do another six now that we've we're like forty podcasts down the road. Yeah, and we've got a lot of go through them.
1: We've got a lot of uh, of sort of water under the bridge, or a little more experience in talking about the overall uh, ideas of investing. And there's no question that Charlie is, uh, you know, at one time saying that the reason they don't teach these simple principles in the university is because there wouldn't be anything for the professor to talk about the rest of the semester, which is not really the case
0: (laughs) (laughs) now who's Charlie again will you just tell us who Charlie Munger is
1: okay Charlie Munger is um, a guy that grew up in Omaha Nebraska and is considered by many people to be maybe the only guy ever to come out of Omaha Nebraska who is actually smarter than Warren Buffett and they became (laughs) friends in the late 1950s um, and have been partners in investing ever since they don't always invest in the same things But they
0: don't. I was wondering if he was like technically an officer of Berkshire Hathaway or what his professional role is related to Warren Buffett.
1: Well, you'll have to tell me as an attorney whether the vice chairman of the board is (laughs) an officer.
0: Oh, no, he's not an officer. Okay,
1: so he's the vice chairman of the board of Berkshire Hathaway. And um, more importantly, he's been um, Warren's sort of Warren's concept guy for for how to invest. It's really kind of cool. Buffett gives Ben Graham full credit, full marks for teaching him how to invest. And Ben Graham, of course, is the author of Security Analysis and The the Intelligent Investor, both of which were kind of seminal works in the idea of value investing. That is that companies have value um, in the marketplace and sometimes the market doesn't put the price properly where the value is. Sometimes it's priced way higher than the value when when the market's irrationally exuberant and sometimes the price is too low when the market's really depressed. And um, so Charlie, or sorry, uh, Ben Graham fathered those ideas and gave them uh, legitimacy by putting numbers to it all in security Mm. analysis. And then he taught Buffett. But Graham's style and many value investors' style is to buy a lot of stocks. Graham would buy like 200 stocks. And he would just hope that he was buying a basket full of companies, many of which would survive, and some of which would go broke, and then he would come out okay. And that worked really, really well during the depression and World War II. Um, but by the middle nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, that wasn't there weren't there weren't as many companies around um, at the price that you could buy companies at at the depression.
0: So he was only choosing companies that were undervalued. But then he would just buy all the ones he found that were undervalued. Yeah,
1: more or less, it's and like, not
0: really look at the fundamentals of the actual company. Is that what you mean?
1: Exactly. He he wouldn't worry about the fundamentals of the comp- company so much. Just understanding basically that the company was messed up or it wouldn't have been on sale. So yeah. he wouldn't worry about the fundamentals so much. Although he certainly he certainly paid attention to them. Let me back off of that a minute. The security so you buy analysis. Two hundred
0: different companies. That's a lot.
1: Yeah. So you're just running off a few basic numbers and. And buying a hugely diversified portfolio on and and, and consider though the price he was paying was less than net working capital, which means that, you know, if you sold the whole company off, you would have bought it cheaper than what you'd have in your hand for cash. Hmm. So, you know, that's depression era stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, you know, yeah.
1: You're not going to find. So he was
0: basically those. hoping that more than not would go. But wait, no. What am I trying to say? The ones. Part of them would go bankrupt. Part of them would do well. Part of them would sort of stay the same. I, I imagine that's what he was expecting.
1: That's right. And, and Buffett used to characterize this by calling it cigar butt investing, because you know back in the depression, people would, you know, a rich guy would walk down the street and throw away a cigar before it was completely gone, right? And <laughs> and guys would pick it up out of the off the street with a few puffs still in it, but it was free. <laughs> and so Buffett said that's essentially what. My teacher was trying to do is to just get companies that are basically free. And some of them would still have some puffs left in them.
0: Yeah, but you weren't sure until you picked it up and not on
1: that nasty nasty thing. Yeah, what it was like. So Charlie comes along after Buffett had been doing this for a few years in the late 1950s. Charlie comes along and says, look, this is this is the classic Charlie Munger quote. Warren, it's better to buy a wonderful business for a fair price than to buy a fair business for a wonderful price. So the point being that wonderful businesses are going to keep being wonderful for a long, long time. And so even if you goof up and don't get it for a super, super discount, you still got a really good company. Whereas if you pay a little too much for a a relatively weak business, you can get hammered. So you got to get it right. It's easier to get it right going for wonderful businesses. That was Charlie's big um, sort of contribution to the whole concept of investing. And, and Buffett Partnerships and then Berkshire Hathaway starting in 1969 benefited from that. And, it, and it's historical, right? I mean, these, these guys have compounded money at over 20% a year for 50 or 60 years. It's stunning. In other words, $10,000 invested back then when they figured this out, today is worth about $40 million. Gosh. Yeah, it's huge what compounding does. So. That concept of wonderful business is now really key to Buffett, and that's what Charlie's talking about. And that takes a lot of unwinding. It's like, first, you have to be capable of understanding that it is a wonderful business. Second, it's only going to be wonderful if it has some kind of intrinsic characteristic that protects it from competition, which Warren Buffett calls a moat. And then third, got to have good management in there. you got to have people who are good at what they do and can... And well, are, actually, he are says integrity. we would
0: like to have good management.
1: True, true, well but it's, said. Not
0: it's not a requirement.
1: Not a requirement because if the business is really wonderful, it can survive past bad management.
0: Yeah, which scares me a little bit. I will say, I'm not sure. Like, uh, I, uh, my instinct is towards the gotta have good management.
1: I think that's a good instinct. To tell you the truth, <laughs> I think that's really wise. Um, it's just that it's nice that. Um, the whole system doesn't hang on having to have great management. When you do venture yeah, but capital, it's really
0: hard to know about people. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. Well, venture capitalists are looking as much at the jockey as the horse. Like they, they really bank the on, on having people that they believe in um, who will figure it out.
0: They tend to bet much more on the jockey than on the horse because ah. the horse, the horse tends to change
1: well this this is your expertise I mean you're a lawyer in that field and and so the horse tends to change well you, you when you're when you're investing your heart in retirement money, it's not gambling money like those venture guys are gambling
0: well, they wouldn't say that
1: no okay fair enough would would they actually say that they really seriously know they're going to make money?
0: No, I mean the classic venture portfolio is let's say you have ten companies you expect three of them to completely die and go bust, three of them to go nowhere, three that do pretty well, like maybe you make some money, and one that kills it. So if you have that, you make money as a venture capitalist.
1: Very cool. So 30%. Oh, and by the way, the long-term rate of return for venture capitalists that are successful runs only slightly higher than Buffett's long-range rate of return as well. I don't know if you knew that, but they run about 26%, you know, a double every three years kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Most of those guys would be pretty excited about that. Um, And if you think about it, they're basically saying that we're going to have 30% of our companies are going to lose every penny we put in them. 30% we're just going to get our money back. And then what? 30%
0: thirty percent you hope like like do pretty well, you know, maybe they get sold, maybe they make a little bit of money, everybody kinda of goes home pretty happy. Yeah. But it's nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. And then you hope you get one that's Facebook or hmm. Uber or, you know, whatever the new sure. hot thing is that just goes nuts in IPOs.
1: Sure. So let's say you put let's say you put a thousand dollars in each I of mean, these ten And let me
0: just say you hope that all of them do that. Yeah, but that's of but that's hey. the classic sort of what you would expect from um from a decent VC portfolio.
1: Right. So venture capitalists, they don't come in and go, well, you know, these 3 out of 10 are probably really suck investments, but we're going to do right. them anyway.
0: No, they expect them all to do well. Yeah, but the exactly. thing with with startups is that there's so much changing with tech startups, high growth tech startups. There's so much changing so quickly in that field and People's ideas change all the time. And there's like the classic, like you say, you know, the company pivots, which always makes me think of Ross on Friends yelling <laughs> pivot about the couch. <laughs> but it's like that. It's like you pivot the company and the idea that you start with often is not the idea that ends up going to market. But the people do stay the same. So that's why they look at betting on the jockey instead of the horse.
1: And this is this is the vast difference between investing in, in, in my my view and speculation with investing, there shouldn't be a pivot. With investing, you should have a business that's so simple that an idiot can run it. But it's locked in with this intrinsic protection, this this, this moat, um, such that it's very hard to compete with these guys. So you want, you want simple, but you want moat. And, um, you know, I got to tell you, those are not that easy to come by.
0: You know? No, I mean I do think that VC investing is not speculation. There's an awful lot of deals that those guys see that they say no to, and that's it's really more of a skill than choosing the right company is saying no to the to the wrong well, company.
1: Let me let me let's clarify. But it's clarify. very different.
0: But it's very different from the kind of investing that you look at, which is established companies that have a track record. When you're looking at companies that have absolutely zero track record, the only thing you really can go on are the people and the idea that those people have come up with as well as their plan to go forward. But you don't, you don't have any backward looking um, data to rely on.
1: Well, I'm going to argue back here. I'm going to push back that unless you're, in other words, investing is something that has um, a high degree of certainty to it. I'm going to make the bar really high in terms of certainty. There's no, it's not perfect certainty. Um, So we'll say, The most perfect certainty you can get in an investment is to invest in a U.S. government treasury bond because the U.S. government is not going to go broke. And now the reason I don't say that's perfect certainty is because there's never been a country in the history of the world that hasn't eventually destroyed its currency. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, they print too much of it and it crashes it and you end up owning something that gets devalued 10 to 1. So. Even in when they have a printing press, you don't have perfect certainty. But we're going to say that that's as close as it gets in the real world to certainty as the government is going to pay you 2% every year for 10 years. Deal. Fair enough. That's certainty. All right. Then we come down to the next level of certainty, which is sort of Warren Buffett-ish, what we would call rule one investing, where you're buying a company which has characteristics of a bond with the U.S. government. That is that there's a high degree of likelihood that this cash flow is going to continue for as long as you intend to be in the investment. That's, the, the in my view, the highest level of certainty you can get while investing in a company. Okay? okay. Then you step down another level. And when you step down another level, you shift. I'm going to call those things investing. I'm going to say that when you buy with a great degree of certainty that the cash flow is going to continue, you've almost bought a bond. In fact, Buffett calls these things equity bonds. So to him, Coca Cola, American Express, IBM, uh, Wells Fargo, these are, these are bonds. They're not stocks in the traditional sense that they just can go up and down and your, your return goes up and down with them. All of these companies pour cash out to Warren Buffett's ownership. And they would do yours too, if you owned them. So these are cash cows, they're cash machines, and they're producing all this cash like a bond. So they have that in common with a bond. Now, unlike a bond, there is some degree of speculation. In other words, they're not the federal government and they don't have a printing press.
0: At Evernorth Health Services,
1: we believe costs
0: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care.
1: And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. <laughs> but think They're about it.
0: They're definitely not. They're private companies. Yes, they are not the federal government. They're private companies that can go bankrupt Yes, they have a long track record and a very good high probability that they'll continue doing well. But they're private companies. I mean, they I are. very much dislike this this comparison to a government bond.
1: Oh, well, let me, let, me, let me further my case. Please. Each of these companies produces a bond. A dividend. No, a bond. They actually issue corporate bonds. Hmm. So, for example, if you go to the bank and you buy a CD... In effect, you're buying a corporate bond of some sort, right? They, they package them together and they give you a CD or you buy one, one corporation's bond. So Coca-Cola issues debt and the debt is called a bond. And you buy this Coca-Cola bond and Coca-Cola guarantees it'll pay you with all of the net assets of the car corporation behind it, which is one step more secure than stock, which doesn't have the assets of the corporation behind it. Right. But... A Coca-Cola bond is only slightly you know more secure than the stock itself.
0: Well I feel like that's a big thing to say. Bondholders get paid before stockholders. True. So I would say it is strongly more secure than owning stock.
1: Well, here's the catch. Coca-Cola doesn't have a huge amount of sort of General Motors-like assets, right? It doesn't have plants everywhere. It doesn't have, they're not car machinery. They don't have acres of land. You know, I mean, they have acres of land, but they don't have millions of acres. They don't have a lot of hard assets. So Coca-Cola's value is really wrapped up in its actual business operations. If those business operations were to shut down so that shareholders didn't get any money, I would argue pretty strongly that the Coca-Cola brand is kaput. And the value of the bonds would be crushed. And you probably wouldn't get your money back entirely. Might get some of it back. So, yeah, they're a little bit there. That's what I'm saying. The the distinction between owning Warren Buffett's equity bond, that is the stock of Coca-Cola, versus owning Coca-Cola's actual corporate bond is a matter of degree, but it's not a huge matter of degree. I mean, I'll grant you 100 percent. The U.S. government is much more secure. Okay, but. We're talking a matter of degree. So we come U.S. government, then we come, let's say, um, Wells Fargo, the, the best bank operation in the United States. Um, they issue a bond and now you own the Wells Fargo bond. The only problem is you're only going to get like 4% from the Wells Fargo bond. If you own the Wells Fargo stock, you get a 2% dividend plus the growth of the company, which is growing at 4 or 5% a year, which is 6 or 7% versus the corporate bond.
0: Okay, I think you're trying to say that owning certain sort of, I don't know if those are, Coca-Cola I think is a blue chip stock, but I don't know if Wells Fargo is. But yeah. blue chip style stocks are very secure.
1: They're is that what you're secure. trying to say? Yeah, they're very okay. secure. So I'm, I'm going down a sort of a, a ladder of, of, in, of risk. And, um, and at some point down this ladder, it's no longer an investment. It becomes a speculation. So my argument is that US government, we'll we'll just say that's no speculation. Then we're gonna say, okay, then corporate bonds, some speculation, but not a lot if it's blue chips, and then equity bonds, which were own the stock of a blue chip, and then you get down below that into normal stocks, which you could own as an equity bond, and then you get down below that, and below that, and below that, and somewhere down that ladder, way down the ladder, are your venture capitalists.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's so risky. I mean, I'm not saying at all that it's not risky. I'm saying the people who do it and make money at it still are good at it and believe that they are investing, not speculating, and are making discerning choices so that they invest rather than speculate. But regardless, it's very risky. Angel investors are very risky with their money. Like, It's a very risky thing to do. So anything different than that?
1: I think I just caught that. That your definition of investing is that you're you said something about um, you know a lot about the company or something like that. What was it you said?
0: I said there's a level of discernment in a
1: level of discernment
0: in what they choose to put their money in.
1: Okay, so now let's go over to horse racing for a second. Horse racing would not be considered investing, right?
0: Well, I suppose it depends on how much you know about the horses. Don't I'm
1: going to assume you know a lot about the horses. You're like studying the horses and you have you have a lot of knowledge. You have you have all the knowledge you can have about horse racing. Investing or speculating?
0: Do I have all the knowledge I can have about those horses actually in the given race?
1: Yeah, like everything you could know, you know. You, you I know you,
0: everything.
1: Well, you're not God, but you know Everything that the trainers know about those horses. Yeah.
0: I would say that's investing.
1: Ooh, you would?
0: I would. Because you know what horses are more likely to win than other horses with a pretty strong degree of certainty. Now, there's probably like two or three who could all win. And in that, that's where you just have to, you know. Hopefully, use your your knowledge since you know almost everything except for what God knows about like the amount of sleep they got the night before and what they ate and that kind of
1: thing. Well, I I would actually I'm not going to disagree with you in general because there are there are very good syndicates that put lots of people's money together who study the horses really closely and who and historically, um, I know one of them did 150 million dollars in in profit. So <laughs> they did it really consistently too. That's
0: completely insane.
1: It is crazy, but. I still would not call that investing. I think there's a high degree. Of, well, but you're put conflating like
0: you're conflating risky investing and speculation. You're using the term speculation to mean risky investing.
1: Yes, right? which means there is no such thing as risky investing in my in my definition. Those that, things are right. not the same thing.
0: You're using investing to mean low risk investing. Yes, yeah.
1: so risky investing is an oxymoron. No. It yes, is. it is. It's an oxymoron. It's just a bunch of people that don't want to admit that they're actually rolling the dice. They just don't want to admit it. And it's in their bit it's in their interest not to admit that they're actually speculators. If you're a venture capitalist and trying to raise money from pension funds, you don't want to go in and say, hey, we're a speculator, man.
0: Because they're not speculating. They have reasons for doing what they're doing. But I think of speculating as just as you just said literally 15 seconds ago rolling the dice. There is no rhyme or reason to what numbers are going to come up on that dice when you roll it, and that's the whole point. Whereas oh my gosh,
1: you are so uninformed about dice.
0: I am not uninformed about
1: dice. <laughs> There's a complete rhyme or reason to what numbers are going to come Stop up.
0: Stop it. Don't say things like that.
1: There is. Go, it's, OK, clearly you have never played craps.
0: No, I've never played craps. That's right.
1: Because if you had, you would know that on the crap table, if you get a number, like let's say eight, that there are very specific odds of the eight coming up that are different than all the rest of the numbers on, there, on, on those dice. In other words, you're rolling two dice. So there's a set of odds that are saying that the odds of getting these numbers are much, much higher. Because for example, in order to get a two, there's only one way you can get a one and a one.
0: Now you're talking about something different. I'm talking, talking about probability. About, you're talking about combination <laughs> of dice, and what I was talking about was one die being thrown. I didn't say and we're to rolling. My knowledge, no, to my knowledge, no. Unless it's a weighted die, <laughs> there is an equal probability of any of those six numbers. Roll,
1: coming up. roll back the tape, and you'll hear that I said, "Roll of the dice." Not roll of the die. It's roll of the dice. And that is in fact full of math about what's gonna come up next.
0: That is true.
1: The probability
0: of combinations of numbers. Yep. That is true. There are various, you know, yes. So statistics about that.
1: Roll of the dice
0: And you know perfectly well that's not what I meant when I was
1: talking. (laughs) I don't. I don't. What I think is that you're trying to make the case that risky investing is actually meaningful. What I'm saying is is it's a contradiction of terms and an oxymoron. And what you've got is a a situation where the dice have odds, but you're gambling. That's what gambling is. And so it's not that gambling is just you're an idiot throwing one dice and they all have exactly the same odds of coming up. One die. Let us not confuse it. Let us not confuse (laughs) it. And it's not like, a matter of odds. Like Warren Buffett's not gonna go into a company where the odds are good it's gonna come out all right. That's completely anathema to investing. I don't invest when it's an odds bet. Even, you know, okay, there's a 70% chance it's gonna come out right.
0: No, there's no way that's true. There's always some chance it won't come out right.
1: Yeah, but as soon as you start to be able to put any kind of odds on it, you've stepped into the world of speculation. Like Buffett used to do, and maybe still does, a lot of merger acquisition betting. He very was very clear. It's speculation. We've got these two companies that are merging. The odds on this happening, the probability of it happening is like ninety percent. Okay, great. Now we can run an analysis that says, you know, if we put in this much money, and uh, you know, and that's what we could lose, and here's how much we could win, and we've got a ninety percent probability. We can figure out whether we ought to make that bet. But that's not the case for you know putting money in Wells Fargo. That's there's nothing that says oh yeah it's about ninety five percent probability that Wells Fargo will be around in ten years. No,
0: no, I don't. Yeah, I mean I I would say it's a ninety nine percent point
1: chance. nine. I would say if the country's far- around in ten years, you know ninety nine point nine 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 Wells Fargo is too.
0: The part we don't know is whether Wells Fargo's stock price is going to be up in ten years. That's the part we don't know.
1: And here's the beauty, Danielle investing like Buffett does it and investing like I do it, we really don't care. (laughs) We don't care. We don't care what the market's doing. And this is really critical to understanding really the difference between investing and and speculating. So I think you've opened a fabulous sort of uh, area that we really have to concentrate on. I was going to talk more about Chipotle, Mexican grills, valuation and all that. We'll do that next time. Let's finish this. This is hugely important.
0: Okay. Okay. If we're going to talk about something besides Chipotle, we have to take a a minor interlude and just say, we meant to talk about Chipotle. (laughs) (laughs) We meant to talk about Chipotle last week, but we had the worst technical difficulties we've ever had. And last week was just, we got cut off and it was just a mess. Um, And now this week, we're totally off on some different topic. So I'm fine pushing Chipotle to next week, but just so everybody knows- that we're pushing it.
1: I wanted to talk about you know Chipotle badly, but we keep getting into these issues that I think are more important to correct. And and I, you know I really want you to understand that there's a there is a gap that exists between investing and speculating, and that people who say they are investing and there's many of them are not investing. They're just speculators, and that includes the people who run your mutual funds, who run the pension funds. Anybody that's investing in an index, they're all speculators. And the okay, reason-
0: so you seem to have a very clear idea in your mind of what speculation is versus investing.
1: Well, I certainly have uh, a sense of what kind of product it is that I would call it speculating versus the kind of product I would call investing. So, I mean, I just named a couple of things that virtually 99% of the people who are managing other people's money would say are investments. And I just call them speculation.
0: OK, say those again.
1: OK, the your mutual funds and the indexes, the stock market indexes are speculative. And the reason that they're speculative is you're basically buying into something, expecting it to go up because it's gone up in the past. That's mm-hmm. your only reason. Like, OK, I think America's going to be better in the future than it is. In, it was in the past. Well, we're right now in the first generation of people. You are likely to have as an average in your generation a less wealthy life than me first generation in the history of america in other if words if
0: i have all sorts of reasons that i think the market is going to go up does that make me an investor or am i still a speculator i think simply you're a speculator because, simply because i'm buying an index well so it has nothing to do with my own preparation or reasons for Making a certain a certain purchase,
1: it does. It's just that the 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 world of things that you have to know to know that America is going to be fabulous down the road in twenty years, which means the stock market has doubled three more times in that period of time if it keeps up with historical averages. You have to know a lot of stuff. You have to know that um, you would have to make a spe- you'd have to make an analysis and say that well, if regulation keeps compounding on American business at its previous rate of growth, um, it won't choke off American businesses totally. Second, you'd have to say that if the rate of American companies, good American companies leaving the country continues to accelerate at this rate, somehow it won't choke off American productivity. You'd have to say that if the rate of jobs leaving America continues to grow at the same rate, it won't somehow destroy American productivity and the American worker. You'd have to say that somehow the middle class has got to recover from its current uh, lack of growth of, of its uh, real real earnings um, that it's experienced for the last 20 years, it's, that somehow that's gonna turn around. In other words, you've gotta create a macro view of the world that says that tomorrow's gonna be vastly different from, for America than it's been for the last two, three decades. And that's a hard case to make. The American people keep voting people into office whose job it is is to control things. And that control has been pushed in as almost like octopus tentacles around the throats of of young, small startup businesses to a point where the founders of of Home Depot, for example, said that they couldn't possibly start that company today. And you have to wonder how many Home Depots don't get started before American productivity gains stop happening. And we already know that today the only people who are getting richer in America are the one percenters. I mean, this is the basis of Bernie Sanders' entire candidacy. And it's all about crony capitalism, bigger government. Unfortunately, you know, as much as I love a lot of what Bernie says, and I do, um, his idea to fix it is bigger government. So I don't see a turnaround here, honest to God.
0: You don't see a turnaround? No. Let's say I do. Okay. Are you speculating? And am I speculating? We both have an opinion. We both have reasons for our opinion. Yep. Are we both speculating or yep. are we both investing?
1: We're both speculating. Because, so you're
0: speculating as well.
1: Yeah, because the, the the ideas are too big for any for me to absorb all of the possibilities. There are things out there that can happen that I just can't account for. Now, where am I not speculating? Right. I'm not so speculating. if you have
0: all of those views right. on the market as a whole, on the country as a whole. Right. How does that not bear on choosing a particular given company and buying that company?
1: Well, because what we're looking for in the future is greater productivity without really doing anything much different. All right. So I'm going to go back to our real estate example. Remember that building we had at NYU?
0: Yeah. Okay. So this is a building that Warren Buffett found in like the 80s, I think? 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. It's it was near NYU in New York somewhere.
1: Owned by the federal government who had taken it over from a bank or a savings loan that went under.
0: And it had a tenant that was paying a really low rate that yep. it was locked into something like seven more years of a nine, lease. Nine
1: more years in the building.
0: And there were a bunch of empty suites in the building and basically it was kind of a mess. Well, and
1: it was, was a thought. mess. It wasn't producing much income and it was going to be a long time before it did produce a lot of in, a lot bigger income. But consider Buffett's criteria for that, being an investment rather than a speculation. Okay. Number one, he wasn't buying the building in anticipation of being able to increase the rents to make the deal make sense. He bought the building with a 10% cash flow on the money he that, that he paid for the entire building. So the first thing right off the bat is if nothing changes in America, nothing changes in New York, this thing is in a location that'll keep doing what it's doing, which means 10% per year like a bond.
0: So if nothing changes, you expect it to make money.
1: It's making money, and and it'll make it'll make money for the next ten or twenty years, okay. just the way it is. Okay. So second thing is, without doing anything, in nine years, three quarters of the building comes vacant, and I can release it at market rents. Instead of getting five dollars a foot, I'm going to get seventy dollars a foot. Again, if nothing changes, I'm going to get seventy because that's today's rents. So I'm not looking for it to go up in the future and I'm gonna get 100. All I care about is that the tenant leaves and I get to put somebody in there at standard market rent. All right, those two things make this an investment. Now a lot of people would buy that same real estate, but they would buy it with no cash flow in anticipation of this tenant leaving and then the cash flow goes up and you make a good deal. So something wonderful has to happen here. With Buffett, nothing wonderful has to happen. All it has to do is just keep going. That's very different. That's why I'm calling this an equity bond as a way of distinguishing the kind of company we're looking for from the one that you buy. Well, the venture capitalists are the extreme case where they're getting a company that doesn't even really exist and they're just hoping these really smart people can come up with something eventually, which is vast speculation not investing. No matter what they want to call it because they're out raising money, we call it speculation to distinguish it from what we consider to be really real investing. And not to just blast away here, but geez, Charlie Munger has told us, you don't make money when you buy a company. You don't make money when you sell it. You make money when you wait and you wait and you wait in cash for these opportunities that come along. And Charlie and Morin have both said, if you just had a punch card w- with 20 punches in it, and that's all you got the rest of your life, you would take your time, you would wait to know, this is one of those really good ones, I've gotta get it, and that's one punch, because I've only got 19 left. Or now I've got 11 punches left, I gotta be darn sure if I buy this company, it's really a great one. And so Charlie and Morn are both saying, anybody can do this, this isn't about having a high IQ, it's about being patient and knowing what a wonderful business looks like compared to all the other stuff that's out there. And I'm going to stipulate right here that a wonderful business is an equity bond situation.
0: Here's the problem, though. That's based on your opinion, your evaluation of this business or this building or whatever it is you're buying that creates an opinion that you have about what's going to happen in the future. Now, you may be extremely certain of that opinion, such as with that particular real estate purchase. It sounds like he was extremely certain. It's not the same as certainty. He was extremely confident in his opinion.
1: Okay, I'll I'll buy that. if
0: I'm extremely confident in my opinion that the market is going to go up and everything you just said about the US economy is dead wrong and it's gonna be the exact opposite of that and we are going to have a three times over market rise, what if I'm extremely confident in my opinion? Am I now an investor?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! I think you got me. Oh I mean, man,
0: this—I feel like you this set doesn't that even up. matter. I've been and set I don't know up. why we're talking about
1: this. I have been but- set up in court and knocked over like a bowling pin. That was unfair. You set that up knowing you were going to go there, didn't you?
0: I—I I did not know we were going to discuss this today.
1: But, but you just you- set me up so that I—I was—I was. I was I was totally you screwed when that, I agreed to that. I can't
0: help it when you're wrong. I just can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, you're using the term investing to mean low-risk investing, and you're using the term speculation to mean high-risk investing. Yes. That's what's... that. I just want to be clear about that.
1: Okay. I, I will agree with you, and I'm perhaps being hype, hyperbolic. Is that is that a word? That is I a word. I know it's a word. I'm, I'm being hype. I'm hyping the situation. I'm exaggerating. If I were to say that the you know buying the index is speculation um, but honestly I, and the thing
0: is I think I think so you're you're right sometimes like for a lot of people, it completely is speculation because they don't have any basis on which they're doing they it they have no and basis same at for all. buying coca cola frankly, yeah. they buy it because somebody told them it was a good stock, so yeah. they go buy it like yeah. that's also speculation so
1: fair enough uh, it, it would be it would be it would be to the to the degree that a person feels highly confident that they know what they're doing, they've done the work, that this would change from from speculation to investing. And so for me, uh, you know, what I might consider an investment would be considered uh, wild speculation by maybe Buffett. um, And maybe what I would consider wild speculation would be considered investing by a venture capital guy. yeah. Um,
0: I don't know. It's a really okay. So I just said that I don't even know why we're talking about this. But now I'm so glad we're talking about this, because this is exactly something that I've been wrestling with, with my own feelings about putting money into a company and putting money into the market. It's terrifying. And Mm. I feel speculative about it, because I don't have confidence in my opinion. Well, even th- even if I've done the research, yep. I don't have confidence in my own research because right. I just I don't have much experience. I have almost no experience. Right. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So even when you've even when you've run the numbers and you've gone through the steps that Charlie to go, tells you to go through, it's still at the end you're looking at this sort of conclusion and you're going is there like an answer key somewhere? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I could have done this completely wrong and I will not know until I've lost half of my portfolio, which is terrifying.
1: I got you. I got you 100%. Well, let me wrap up by saying a couple of things about that. First, okay. what this we is want something
0: to... we're going to talk more about because oh, I'm yeah. fascinated
1: by oh, it. Oh, yeah. This is, this is deep, deep stuff. And this is right where uh, the rubber meets the road for most uh, novice investors is what, Danielle, you're talking about right now is huge. And so what we try to do is to, to narrow down the world of, oh, my God, I don't know anything to a small number of companies that fit into what we call the canyon or what Warren Buffett calls the circle of competence. And we try to try to understand what we know and be pretty clear about what we don't know and stay away from what we don't know. So initially, if you start off you starting off not knowing anything at all, then we got to keep narrowing things down until we get into a couple of companies where while you might not know anything, at least, you know, you like what they do because you're a customer. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's where we want to start. I'll, I'll leave it at that for right now. We want to start right there where you're already a customer. You're a consumer of the thing those guys do, which means you've already had some discernment in there. Presumably yeah, it's competitive.
0: Right. I mean, to bring it back to Chipotle, that's a classic example. Good food. We like how they handle their ethics. We know that they're going to clean up their uh, – at least we know that they're going to do their best to clean up this E. coli situation. Yep. And uh, and generally think it's managed well. So well, next that's time a company. It's... And I have done no research on Chipotle. <laughs> so I I know that from you know eating in their restaurant yeah, once a week for the
1: being last in the five world. years. Okay, so let's do this next time. Let's talk about how we would figure out how to come to a value on Chipotle, looking at it, whether it's an investment, whether we can get it to an investment status or it has to stay speculative because we just don't know. So let's use that as the main criteria. At what point does this flip from being a roll of the dice, plural, (laughs) into something that's more like a bond with that level of kind of certainty to it? Let's, let's dive into that, because I think that's really, really getting to where the rubber meets the road for you in particular. I agree. Okay. okay. Good plan. All right. Well, until next time.
0: Thanks, time everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Bye.
1: Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.